Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I talk with Jerry Maravilla. He's an indie filmmaker, he writes and directs, and he's also the head of crowdfunding at Seed and Spark. We talk about his filmmaking journey, including his short film Cross, as well as the benefits of crowdfunding with Seed and Spark. Let's get into it. And here we are with Jerry Maravilla. Jerry, how are you, man? Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, man. Um, there's a lot I want to talk to you about. I mean, you've been busy as an indie filmmaker uh, throughout the years, um, mm-hmm. putting your stamp on, on the filmmaking world. And uh, you also work with the folks over at Seed and Spark. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of a twofold thing as being an independent filmmaker, you know, constantly trying to make a dent as much as possible with my own work and then also working uh, for Seed and Spark as well to just try to stay on top of stuff happening in the film industry and helping other filmmakers too. Yeah. Well, before we get too deep, um, let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. Could you, uh, you know, give us an idea of uh, how it all started for you um, as far as filmmaking? What got you into it? Um, You know, what what really turned you on to, to making indie films? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, film has always been a really powerful presence in my life uh, growing up with my family, you know, watching movies, and I was very movie obsessed, but I never actually considered a real career in filmmaking because it just seemed so out of my grasp for mm-hmm. a very long time. Um, it wasn't until college that I took my first film class. I went to Occidental College, a liberal arts school here in Los Angeles. Um, And uh, I was assigned to write a paper about the use of color on um, the movie Vertigo. And I think in that process at first, I was like very intimidated at the idea of writing like a 10 page paper about color in a movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then found that 10 pages wasn't enough as I got (laughs) into it. Um, And that kind of unlocked a lot of things uh, and helped me articulate a little bit more about why I loved movies so much. And then it was kind of like a Pandora's box thing. Like I didn't really have access to cameras and stuff before growing up. My parents mostly had still cameras. We didn't have a video camera. But then after that class and then being in a college environment and being able to take those classes, I just couldn't turn away from it (laughs) at all. Yeah, so Occidental, that's uh, that's over near uh, Eagle Rock. Yeah, yeah, kind of like our claim to fame or the school's claim to fame was that Obama went there for a couple of years, but then he transferred oh. <laughs> to Columbia. But uh, I always found while I was there taking film classes, a really uh, cool connection was that Terry Gilliam from, you know, who it was in Monty Python, but then, you know, directed Barry Munchausen and 12 Monkeys Mm -hmm. and a lot of other great films was an alumni there too. So that was like the film connection I held on to. Oh, that's great. And, and obviously it, it brought out the filmmaker in you. Um, but it sounds like you also 
had a, a satisfactory experience uh, going there as a whole. Yeah, yeah, I did. I think um, it was a very different experience for me. I'm from Los Angeles, but I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, which is a suburb, and I've gone to LA public schools my whole life. So going to a private liberal arts school was definitely a different experience for me. Mm. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, there were parts of it that were really challenging at first, but I think once I found my groove in the film department and a lot of great help from the professors and then the friends I made in that department really helped me, uh, I think, get the most out of it. And I'm still really grateful for that education and experience because it kind of combined a lot of different elements of film, uh, it being a smaller school. So there was the production and filmmaking side, but there was also like film criticism, film theory, as well as film history, um, and also incorporating bits of media studies uh, as well, too. So looking at where film was going in the future. And I think all of those uh, are always things I'd been thinking about, but it was really cool to be able to be in uh, environments where I could articulate and explore those more. Yeah. I mean, uh, Occidental, I, I've heard of the college, but I, I, you're the first person I've spoken to that has studied film there. So this is pretty exciting. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, most, most indie filmmakers dream about moving to Los Angeles, but you're already here. You got, you got <laughs> one leg up on, on the competition. Um, does, uh, knowing the city, uh, you know, you grew up in the Valley, but I'm sure you've gone everywhere. Is knowing the city become, uh, you know, helpful? Uh, you know, it's funny you say that because even though I grew up technically in Los Angeles, the film industry felt like it was in a whole other state or on the other side of the country. Like right. I didn't quite understand how close it was until I, until I started working in it. Um, but then knowing the city did become an asset. Uh, I mean, I really grant being a PA for many years uh, or a couple of years, like right out of school for being the reason I got to learn the city more, you know, they send you on runs and it's like, you're in Burbank and it's go to Culver city at 5 PM on a Friday. So mm -hmm. you kind of learn quickly <laughs> how to do that as efficiently as possible. Right. Now, was this in the day of the, uh, the Thomas guide or did you have GPS going? I had this like little Garmin GPS thing that wasn't really updated. So I would try to do a combination of like checking online what, uh, like MapQuest <laughs> oh, right. me, uh, and stuff to do. And then a little bit of Google maps, uh, towards the end there. Um, and then tried to do that to, you know, try to act quickly on that, um, to get through cause traffic has always been an issue here, but being able to cover that ground in Los Angeles is really an important part of, uh, a lot of like starting positions in, in the film industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It helps to, to know the lay of the land. I've been here, oh, maybe 12 years now. And, uh, even now I'll turn off and do a, a neighborhood and I'm like, I never knew that was there. Oh yeah. I still have that too. Even myself, uh, LA is such a big city and, uh, there's been so many changes, you know, I feel like as a big city, it's constantly changing. So even streets that I've been on before, I'll go back like a year or two years later and it looks like a completely different place. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. So you mentioned PA work and mm -hmm. I have to bring up, uh, I saw this on your IMDb that you were an office PA for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was one of my first real big gigs uh, was working on the sixth season of that show over uh, in Century City on the Fox lot. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, it was a cool experience. I cool experience. I mean, I think um, it was a nice, good first foray into like working in television. Um, I was very fortunate in that. Like one of my mentors and professors at Oxy, her brother is the filmmaker Mike Mills, um, and he was making the film Beginners, the one with Ewan McGregor and Chris Plummer. Hmm. Um, and so I got like my first start as an intern in the production office there because of you know <laughs> that little connection. Um, but in that you know experience, I was promoted to office PA, and then the production coordinator. Uh, went on to work on It's Always Sunny for the next season, and um, they asked me to come on board for that. So it was like a little bit of a fluctuation in moving up to that. But uh, it was a really cool environment, you know, working on a show for the sixth season, especially a show like that where the lead lead actors are also the head writers and executive producers. Um, it kind of felt like this family environment uh, where everything was a well-oiled machine and kind of let me see the massiveness of a large scale, larger scale production um, for television, like really firing on all cylinders. Yeah, great show, great writing, great acting. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's funny though; it's set in Philadelphia, and they they film it here. Yeah, yeah. For that sixth season, when I was working, I think they shot two days in Philly for the entire uh, season. Like. Wow. The, the exterior to Patty's Pub is actually out here, just east of downtown LA, uh, in the Arts District. Oh, really? I'd love to see that in person. That's cool. Yeah, if it's right by a uh, Villains Tavern, if you know where that is. Okay. Uh, but uh, right off of uh, Traction Avenue, I think by there. <laughs> wow, that's funny. Yeah, and obviously they they can recreate the interior no problem on a on a soundstage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow, that's great, man funny funny show yeah yeah it was cool to be around those guys and whenever i had to take paperwork and stuff down to where they were shooting i tried to find ways to stick around and just see them go through the takes and uh kind of improv a little bit and just what their kind of working relationship was was really fun uh to observe mm -hmm. well that's great because you're an indie filmmaker, but but you're also embedding yourself within the system, uh, you know, you know the the industry, and you get to learn mm -hmm. so much doing that just by just by watching. Um, where where did you go next after that? Uh, after that, I worked in. I wanted to move to post production a little bit. Like, kind of my goal or idea was to try to work in every department that I could, so that I could learn. Uh, the ins and outs of how each one worked and like from like the bottom, you know, but just being able to observe that kind of uh, whole process. Because uh, one thing I really wanted to get good at was um, in terms of being a filmmaker was really kind of understanding what the consequences of my creative decisions were going to be. So, you know, if you're a director and you're running the show, you know, you make a decision like that's going to have ripple down effects through every department because mm -hmm. of uh, making a movie being this moving, breathing organism, you know, that has all these different bits and pieces. Right. Um, so after working in the production office, you know, and getting a sense of that kind of work, um, I ended up, you know, moving from there, uh, working on day playing on some stuff in like camera and art department, uh, as well as on set. But then the next really steadier gig was working as a, uh, like visual effects asset manager in the post-production department for this Disney show called No Ordinary Family, 
that was on now, I guess, six, seven years ago. Nice. Disney. That's that's always nice to have on the resume. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting to be on the Disney lot uh, for all of that. And it was a show that was really heavy visual effects. It was about a family of superheroes. And so it was that kind of scale was even though it was a first season show, it felt even bigger than than It's Always Sunny, which was a more you know established show at the time. But just because of the increase in budget and visual effects and you know shooting two, second units and stuff like that was like a whole other educational process. Wow. So did you were you able to step into that role um, because of your your uh, previous jobs as as coordinator? Um, well, it was because, again, it's always that tried and truism of the film industry of being just like, it's who you know, and like it being about relationships mm-hmm. was uh, um, the a lot of the people who worked on It's Always Sunny, or had worked on It's Always Sunny before, um, were working on that show. So I was able to speak to somebody when I was looking for work, and they put a um, my name in, and I actually started just doing day playing work in the production office on that Disney show. Um, but I had an eye on post production and was talking to them, and um, I didn't really have all of the formal training, but it was such a tight schedule that they were on that I really think that, you know a lot of times people just want to hire someone that they trust and they felt that could do the job. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of what I was doing in the visual effects department was organizing and like. Uh, keeping track of things and stuff, which is very similar, almost like what you do in a production office of being very organized and detail oriented. So uh, they were willing to take the risk on me to jump departments. Wow. How'd you like that gig? It was really challenging. I I mean, I think I, (laughs) I learned a lot, but I went almost like two months with like two or three days off Mm -hmm. (laughs) total, Um, like 14 hour days. And, um, just really challenging, lots of producers, lots of moving pieces. Uh, it, I think that it was at the time I had a really difficult, uh, I had a difficult like time, like kind of wrapping my head around everything and making sure I was on top of stuff. But looking back on it now, I really felt like that felt like a, the film industry boot camp was that job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know a, a visual effects supervisor. And uh, yeah, she'll go months without a break. It's yeah. insane. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Those departments, you know, out of all the um, major departments in the film industry, it's the major, uh, singular one that's not unionized. So that can be really challenging. And then the, the, all the different VFX houses and the turnover rates and stuff. Right. It's really complicated. And, you know, I think I also learned a really valuable lesson there too, is from the leadership side of when a director or producer say, we'll fix it in post, what that can really mean for a lot of people's (laughs) lives (laughs) Um, and be like, okay, don't do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the artists, you know, they got to do it, but, uh, it all falls on you if it's not Mm -hmm. done. So that's a tough gig, man. Tough gig. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, from Disney, where do we go next? This is this is an exciting tale of an indie filmmaker right here. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it was during that time that a friend who I um, was really close with at my time at Oxy was thinking about traveling to um, El Salvador, where he had been born um, mm. and wanted to go and reconnect with his roots. And he invited me to go with him. 
So uh, even though I had been working a lot and I felt like I was learning a lot, uh, and technically the next gig I had was I worked at, in post-production um, on the pilot for the Tim Allen show last that ended up becoming Last Man Standing. I think at the time it was called like Last Days of Man. Hmm. Um, but uh, I was basically took that last gig up and like to save up some additional money. And then I went with my friend and I lived in El Salvador for about seven months. Oh my um, gosh. How many pupusas did you eat? So many down there. They were three for a dollar. Which oh. was like, I don't know how you beat that pricing. It was, And I never got sick of them. So. Man, I love pupusas. <laughs> you know, you see all the uh, pupuserias popping up around LA the last few years. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the first time I had one was a few years ago, just uh, walking down the street and, uh, you know, it was a, it was street meat. It was a, it was a street vendor, but uh, I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> I just said, oh, that looks delicious. Give me it. And ever since then, I've been hooked. Pupusas, are where it's at. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. even a pupuseria at uh, Grand Central Market downtown, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I just ate there a couple of weeks ago. That one's really good. And then there's one in Highland Park in a restaurant called Las Casuelas that I also really Ooh, like too. That sounds legit right yeah. there. <laughs> wow. You can check that place out. It's a local spot. It's been there for years and they got great food. Now, I know you're of uh, Mexican heritage. Do you speak Spanish? Yes, I do. I mean, it wasn't it has never been like perfect. It's definitely better now. Um, and that was uh, one of the reasons I felt motivated to, to go to was that I wanted to get better at Spanish. But I also learned very pretty quickly that um, there are regional and slang differences and stuff, of course, uh, there and a little bit of a different accent. So hmm. uh, um, there was a little bit of a steep learning curve when I first got there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on getting my Spanish skills up to date and then adapting them for the new country I was living in. That's got to be wild, man. I mean, just uh, how people there perceive you. You know, you're you're an American uh, of of Mexican descent in their country speaking Spanish. That's just <laughs> there's a yeah. lot of layers going on there. Yeah, no, it was very interesting in that. Like, I often found that people um, would project back to me what like they wanted me to be based upon their own personal like preferences or prejudices, depending on how you look at it. Mm. So, you know, El Salvador has a complicated relationship with both the United States and Mexico for many different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to some people, they thought that me being an American was much more palatable to them. So they would look at me as an American. Oh. Um, and for others, they would think that it would it's better that I was viewed as being Mexican as opposed to American. So they would refer to me as being Mexican. Uh, hmm. So it was really interesting. It felt like my identity was completely out of my hands there. And I really? was just like up to them to decide which one they wanted me to be. <laughs> well, you survived. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, linger too long on this, but uh, since I do like pupusas so much, uh, what else can you recommend? Oh, on uh, Salvadorian food? Wise? Yeah. Oh, man. That's They're, all I've tried is the pupusa. Um, I like the tamales there. They're a little bit different than Mexican tamales. They are uh, made in uh, banana leaves instead of corn husks. And they actually mm. cook the masa before they cook the meat um, as well. So it's like twice cooked. So it's a little bit softer mm. and a little bit more moist. And uh, there are these things called gut. I think they're called canoas around Christmas time and they're like fried bananas 
that were like sliced open and stuffed with like rice pudding mm. uh, that were delicious. And then at Christmas time, you have pan con pavo, which is like turkey sandwiches, but a specific type of like stewed turkey that I really liked a lot too. Wow, you're making me hungry, man. <laughs> I know, it's about the little late, later in the afternoon, so uh, late lunch, <laughs> early dinner. <laughs> yeah, so now I can explore more when uh, next time I'm at a pupuseria. So oh, thank yeah, you yeah. for that. Of course. Um, so pupusas aside, um, mm -hmm. you came back to the States, and, and what's next? Uh, I came back, and I started doing uh, some freelance editing work, um, but really, I was trying to think of a way to make my own filmmaking work a priority um, again, because it kind of became sidelined while I was doing all these other jobs and learning learning more, too. Uh, mm -hmm. And so through the freelance editing, I also took a job at, at UCLA doing um, some just like AV technical work uh, just because of those set hours. So that way I would know I would have blocks of time, you know, clock in, clock out, and that's it. Not like visual effects where it's like, all day, every day. <laughs> right. Yeah. A little consistency. Uh, yeah. Um, and I started writing this script that I started to feel very passionately about, um, called cross and it, uh, loosely based off my childhood friend growing up in the Valley about a Filipino American kid who gets into backyard boxing, um, and is like, I wanted to look at the intersection of Latino and Filipino culture. Cause you know, seeing some of the truisms from my Mexican heritage and upbringing and then seeing that in El Salvador. And then I also visited Guatemala um, and then coming back and thinking about why my friend and I were such good friends and why our families shared a lot of things in common. And even though they were from different cultures and, you know, there's the colonialism of both being Spanish colonies, the Catholicism, very family oriented. And it's like, oh, I've never seen that really talked about or discussed in film. And um, this kind of dynamic idea of someone who does boxing or backyard boxing is like an interesting avenue to explore all of that in a much more theatrical and cinematic way. Yeah. Um, that was like, so it was kind of, it was based off some elements of my real life, but like filtered through like this narrative lens to try to, um, just have more of a story structure to everything. Mm -hmm. And so I had written the script and I really wanted to try to make something with a much more substantial budget than I had ever worked with before. But I, then, um, you know, as much as I learned about stuff on the production and post end, I realized I hadn't invested as much time or energy or have as much access to how to get things funded. So I kept running into the walls there of like how to do this. Like, how do I make this story happen? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, being told, you know, there's no money in short films, which is something that, you know, I've heard a lot. And then, also being told that there was no money in a film that um, pre, uh, featured a predominantly or all Latino and Filipino cast. Oh, uh, man. When are they going to learn? I Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the last few years have been kind of encouraging on that front because mm -hmm. of uh, the way the conversations changed. But when I first had this idea, it was like 2012 um, when I was working on it mm. and um, was having hitting those roadblocks a lot up until that point. So... Um, it, around in 2014, I decided, you know, I'd start hearing about crowdfunding and seeing other crowdfunding projects. And I felt like I kept coming. I didn't necessarily feel like I wanted to do it right away, but I kept coming back to it uh, as 
it seemed like the most accessible and realistic way that I was going to get my project funded mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in order to tell this story. Um, but yeah, I felt um, motivated to do that. And I took a workshop on how to crowdfund successfully um, at, at Film Independent. And it was actually taught by Emily Best, who's the CEO of Seed and Spark. Right. Um, it's it it like one of the first times I had heard of them. Um, and I really felt like what Emily, the Emily's approach and Seed and Spark's approach to crowdfunding really broke it down to me in a way that I felt was accessible and could also really um, work in a way that like, it was like actionable, smaller chunks and like little tasks that I felt like, oh, I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, oh, sorry, there's a siren going by. I don't know if how distracting that is. If we want to, do you want to wait until it? Yeah, we can wait. I think it's good now. Oh yeah, we're good. Yeah, so you 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 decide to to crowdfund, and you discover Seed and Spark after listening yeah. to Emily Best, um, and you went for it, and it was a success. Yeah, I it was. Um, you know, I was really nervous. I didn't really know if I fully knew what I was doing. It was a little bit of preparing and taking a leap of faith and pushing myself to do things that I wasn't necessarily sure that I could do or, um, but I think something that Emily said in the class that connected with me that I still believe is that if you start to view crowdfunding through the lens of an extension of filmmaking, then it becomes a lot easier. Um, and more of those things make sense, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of what are you doing to further tell the story of your film? Also like, like a film, um, how much planning are you putting into it? You know, how much communication do you have? Like stronger pre-production makes for stronger production um, and being able to pivot when things aren't working and think on your feet and move quickly uh, is an asset on the crowdfunding world in the same way as it is when you're on set and trying to meet your day. Indeed, yeah. So, well. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> My talking must have covered it up for a bit, but... Uh... Oh. There we go. I think it's gone again now. <laughs> okay. It's not a big deal. Um, so yeah, for all you indie filmmakers out there, I, I'm willing to bet most of you know what Seed and Spark is. But uh, for, for those few that don't, Jerry, could you tell us, uh, you know, why it's different than uh, other platforms and uh, like, uh, you know, Kickstarter or Indiegogo um, and, and why it's so good for filmmakers? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Seed and Spark is a funding and streaming platform. So filmmakers can crowdfund and also distribute their work. Um, and, when, and it all comes from the idea of really being for filmmakers um, and being created by filmmakers. Um, and so, you know, you can launch a project for anything filmmaking related or series or documentary. Uh, but we don't we don't have like products or other things, uh, crowdfunding at, at the same time or alongside the film stuff. Um, and because that, because of that focus of filmmaking, it allows us to try to make, it allows the platform to be more catered to what the needs of filmmakers are going to be on, on, on both sides. But I can speak pretty specifically to the crowdfunding side, uh, from my experience and everything, um, in that, uh, you know, we, we have the highest success rate in the world um, on the crowdfunding platform, which is 75%. Um, and one of the reasons is, to that is because we, you know, CN Spark provides personalized project feedback. Um, and 
we really look at ev everyone's materials, you know, your pitch video, your incentives, uh, your goal, your social media, and help present to you like different educational materials and that feedback to help you be in the best position to launch your campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so that's one, I think, major benefit. Another is that uh, our threshold is at 80%. So that's when you hit 80%, we call that getting the green light and you get to keep the money that you raise once you hit that marker. Oh, nice. um, so it's not quite Kickstarter's all or nothing or Indiegogo's like keep what you raise. It's trying to think of, you know, as independent filmmakers, what's going to make the most sense. And, you know, if you are bootstrapping, you know, <laughs> intrepid, uh, dedicated for 80% of the budget, you can probably make the movie that you're trying trying to make. Wow. Um, so we operate on that end. Um, and then we work with a lot of really cool partners and film festivals um, to offer different initiatives and rewards to filmmakers who, who raise with us. So we have like our filmmaker rewards program, which is for campaigns that gather a lot of audiences through not only backers, but, but followers, in which you can get free film festival waiver um, you know, uh, fees, um, as well as a hard drive and consultations and stuff. And we run things like crowdfunding rallies with really big partners, um, to give extra bonuses to filmmakers who kind of hit these markers. And one of those last year was our hometown heroes rally, where a couple projects were chosen by the Duplass brothers to be where they came on board as executive producers. Um, oh, and, wow. um, and now we're, going to be launching a, another crowdfunding rally for uh, feature genre films in which uh, 3311 and The Orchard, different production companies, will come on board and give additional funds um, up to $25,000 as well as like a first look distribution deal. So, you know, through the lens of really making this a platform and place for filmmakers, trying to connect filmmakers with these opportunities as well that will help them uh, take these substantial steps forward in their career and get them access to places that they might not otherwise have. Right. Yeah. I, I really like that. It's just for filmmakers. Um, the focus is on the film itself. That's great. Yeah. So like w w people have it's perk and based or incentive and based crowdfunding. Um, but part of our educational focus is to steer people away from what is common. Cause I think people, there's a lot of crowdfunding projects out there. You know, and not everybody wants a T-shirt or a hat or a mug that mm -hmm. has um, the name of a film that they may not know about or may not care about a few years later or something because it, it, it can be really difficult to draw up interest. So, uh, like, what can you do differently? You know, what can you do that's unique to your project and your skills as a filmmaker that can help you during the campaign? So we talk a lot about offering more visual instant and shareable like incentives for example like having like a custom image um or uh being able to promote something specifically through one of your lead talent members like having them record a, a specialized video message or anything like that that will um doesn't cost you that extra money to try to find out how you're going to create this thing and then send it out and, you know, and then you send it out maybe like three months after the campaign closes, <laughs> like mm -hmm. how can you tighten that window um, to make your audience feel connected and engaged with the campaign when it's happening. Right. That's great. So you, you were able to raise your money with Seed and Spark and mm -hmm. then how did you become head of crowdfunding at Seed and Spark? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I made the film and 
was submitting it to festivals and starting to go through that process and screen at some places. Uh, when one of the co-founders, Erica, who had helped me when I was doing my campaign, reached out and asked me if I would be interested in giving, helping give feedback to filmmakers. And I just thought it would be like as a favor, case by case basis. But after a couple of conversations, you know, they offered me a position working in the crowdfunding department with Erica to uh, help, you know, give that feedback to filmmakers on those materials. And this was uh, in the fall of 2015. Um, and then I've been, you know, they started off like working in that capacity and then just kind of have been growing and working my way up in that department that when Erica uh, had, she kind of decided she wanted to go back into traditional or like more producing side of stuff. Um, they offered me the position to be head of crowdfunding last year. Wow. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> you mentioned uh, you can, you can be very specific in what you're raising for. So a filmmaker maybe could raise funds just for post-production or, just for marketing is that is that how it works yeah so one of the things too is understanding that in filmmaking not all of your budget uh especially independent filmmaking comes from a singular place mm -hmm. so uh we allow filmmakers to raise for different stages and you can even do multiple campaigns for the same project for those different stages um but yeah you can do one just for post-production just for development just for uh, you know, second, you know, uh, if you had to do like additional shooting and things like that. So really trying to help out and, and find what's the best fit for your project and when you need to crowdfund for it. Yeah. And I would imagine most of the people on there uh, supporting um, these uh, campaigns are filmmakers themselves. It's a mixture, a lot. Uh, there are some, you know, one of the things I really like about Seed and Spark is it's a very supportive community of creators that help each other. Um, actually, Christina, who works with me in the crowdfunding um, side of things here, uh, she is based in New York, but she is also someone who crowdfunded with Seed and Spark. She's crowdfunded a few times, actually, um, and is a working filmmaker. And I met her, first started talking to her uh, before either of us worked here through just being part of the Seed and Spark like, community and ecosystem. But... Um, something that I talk a lot about, or I feel like communicating. Uh -oh. oh, there's a horn. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, you get the sirens, I get the car alarm. The car alarm. Maybe yeah. this <laughs> one's pretty bad. Maybe we'll wait this one out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, we've seen that there's a, is a really supportive community of filmmakers um, that you know support projects on Seed and Spark. I mean, who works with me on the crowdfunding side is Christina Raya, who's based in New York, and we were friends as online as filmmakers after meeting through Seed and Spark. But uh, what we try to do in a lot of our conversations um, with filmmakers is really try to get it out there that a platform, no matter what the platform is, really doesn't do the work for you. There's um, especially for crowdfunding for independent film. Um, this there's often a misconception that there are strangers out there who are like looking for projects to finance and to fund. Um, and that tends to be a little bit more true for products. You know, if you're trying to make this new crazy toothbrush or lamp or something, mm -hmm. um, but with, uh, filmmaking and creative endeavors like that, um, it really, the, the, the data and the metrics really show that the majority 
of traffic and contributions come from the direct efforts of the filmmaker themselves and their ability to connect with the right audience. Um, so even if you are featured on like a front page of a platform or, you know, given uh, something, you know, whether you're like a staff pick or highlighted in some way, um, that can often increase your traffic. But the, the data that shows that it leads to a financial conversion is very min minimal and accounts for such a marginal amount of uh, a project. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really, I think there is a tendency amongst filmmakers, you know, that we get so wrapped up in the creative process and like that's the part that we love um, that uh, we don't want to think about, you know, the marketing or funding side of stuff a ton if we don't have to. But if what Christina and I and Seed and Spark really try to do is get filmmakers to think about, well, who is the audience you want to communicate with? Because if you connect with the audience, uh, then you are doing some of that marketing and financing work, but then you're learning about the people who are want to pay to watch the stuff that you're making. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the filmmakers that take that kind of approach and really connect with the right people and go out there or find them online and find communities and conversations uh, to be a part of are the ones that see the most success um, and move out of this like friend and family funding space and into real crowdfunding. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I, I like the fact that it's a community there of filmmakers and uh, film supporters. Um, and uh, you, you get the feedback loop going and, and support along the way. And like you say, you're building an audience and you're interacting with them on, on what matters to you. Um, so that, that sounds very valuable to a filmmaker. Yeah. I think that if you look all arts industries, you know, there's always changes in ec economics and changes in technology. But um, what has been able to give artists across all mediums the ability to have like a sustainable career is having ownership of their IP and like their creative and also having that direct connection to their audience. Um, and so I think crowdfunding is a powerful tool that allows you to do both of those things uh, so that you can really build uh, start to really build that career in a meaningful way and in a way that gives you a lot of power as a creator, a lot of leverage. You know, if you own the IP and you own the pipeline to the audience, um, anyone who else who's trying to uh, help you or claim that they're trying to help you, they're all just trying to get access to that so you can be a lot smarter of who you choose to partner with and work with um, because you have the ownership over the most important aspects of, the, of your career. Right. Yeah, that's important. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about uh, you were talking about when you were younger, you you thought, uh, you know, the film industry was some unattainable thing. But uh, it sounds like with Seed and Spark, you're you're in it. You're, you're talking to other filmmakers. And, uh, you know, not only are you, you know, you're building your audience, but you're kind of building your team. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's the, um, what I really like about Seed and Spark even before I, I worked here too, was um, that level of accessibility, you know, of being able to uh, communicate and have like conversations about what's happening in the film world, be transparent. You know, we've done these Twitter chats called Film Curious uh, since I was a, just a community member before I was a, a, a employee. Um, and, you know, like 
we'd have they'd be like guest people for the film Curious Footage Heads who were either like entertainment pro- lawyer professionals mm-hmm. or people who worked in distribution um, and post production on the acting and casting side. So it starts to feel like this pool of resources and, and information that you can look at, and then you start to see other filmmakers and you can follow them on social media and kind of see how they're approaching their career or tackling some of the same problems that you are having because the film industry is constantly changing, but you know, any problem that you have as a filmmaker, I promise you someone else out there is also having that problem. So the more people you know who are in it, the the quicker people are going to be able to come up with solutions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other filmmakers on there are supporting, uh, someone's project when it comes time for, for them to have a project and they've already made that connection. I'm sure, uh, that goes both ways, right? Yeah. I, I love seeing that. It happens a lot. Actually. It's one of my, um, my favorite things to see is to see other filmmakers supporting one another. There were projects that, you know, they they got the green light and then they saw another project that they liked or connected with that was a little bit short. And so they used like the last week of their campaign to help promote the other campaign. Oh, wow. Um, um, and so that kind of community building and growing is really, uh, you know, that level of altruism. You know, I think a lot of times artists feel this sense of there's only so many resources. And like, if I don't, if this person gets to make my, their movie, that means I don't get to make my movie. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, not the case. The, there's overlap in audience and there's also not overlap in audience. You could be appealing to completely different people who want to see completely different things. Um, and if you have a powerful project and you are very um, compelling in your pitch of it, then um, you know, the people that are interested and in, if you're doing that outreach, you know, you guys will be able to connect and find that support. Right. Now, speaking of powerful projects, uh, cross your, your short film seemed to be powerful enough to, uh, to raise the money, um, and, and build an audience around it. Since you did crowdfund through seed and spark, uh, successfully, mm-hmm. do they then, uh, give you a little publicity or, or push it out there or? Um, you know, like they see it in spark at the, when I was doing my campaign, you know, um, they would help. They promoted it a few times on their social media accounts and everything. Um, and they have, you know, since highlighted it, you know, when I, I would send out updates and stuff about being at a festival screening and stuff and seen in spark would, would talk about it. And we really try to be very supportive of our, filmmaking community we love to hear from our filmmakers when they're getting into festivals when they have a screening when they're releasing because um again it's like this shared experience of like oh you crowdfunded on scene and spark and like let us know what you're up to like we want to know and we've been able to see some projects go full circle um there was a documentary film that crowdfunded last year called um half the picture about women in the film industry and it was really great this past year uh, we went to Sundance um, and that because that film pr- premiered there. Uh, so it was really a fun kind of thing to be able to s- remember and go through that process of when they were crowdfunding and then to be there with them at their premiere party at, at the Sundance Film Festival. Wow, Sundance. That's fantastic, man. Yeah. And uh, I love the title, Half the Picture. Yeah, That's, that's yeah. brilliant. It's a great film. I think they just got distribution through Gravitas Ventures and they played at South by, so it should be available um, pretty soon, but it's a very powerful and very well-made documentary and uh, just really happy for a filmmaker to, to be able to, to go on that full journey with it. 
Yeah. And I imagine uh, in the near future, Seed and Spark is going to have so many success stories that they could start their own film festival if they wanted to. <laughs> you know, we've talked about doing specialty screenings and stuff like that before. Um, just, you know, as we look at our streaming library too, uh, there's been more and more films coming in uh, that have also fundraised with us. And so that's always nice. Like if they can kind of complete this like ecosystem of uh, funding with us and then streaming with us uh, in order to get access to more data and information to keep building the, those uh, audience members. Mm -hmm. So with your movie, uh, you mentioned uh, festivals. Um, how did it fare in the festivals? What was that experience like? Oh, it was really uh, educational and good experience, too. I mean, I got, we got into a handful of film festivals, um, including like the Newport Beach Film Festival, L.A. Asian Pacific, um, like San Francisco, Latino. So a lot of uh, sometimes some of the uh, racially or ethnically specific film festivals took like uh, embrace the project because of its dual uh kind of lens of looking at Filipino and Latino culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a lot of fun going, you know, it's so great to be able to go to a festival and to sit in a theater um, and to, you know, be in a room with people who have paid to view your work, you know, and especially when it's people who you don't know um, and having those Q and A's and being able to talk with people uh, who resonated with the, with the film in, in different ways. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of people from Los Angeles, because it's screened at a few festivals in LA here, and um, a lot of people come up and be like, oh, like people in my high school did that too, or like I know people who do that, like the backyard boxing mm -hmm. kind of thing. So uh, realizing and kind of learning in that, oh, like it's not unique to just uh, what my high school was, um, and seeing that this story in particular can connect with people outside of that um, is really encouraging um, and really kind of like propels me as I continue to like write and, and create stuff. Since you do jump around so much, uh, which is great, um, especially uh, for a director to understand all the little bits and pieces that happen in, in filmmaking, um, wh where do you see yourself going? Is, is it more producing, more directing? Uh, where do you see yourself in the future? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. And when, I mean, I love, I love filmmaking and I love directing a lot. I think I find, um, I think what I connected with, even when I was kind of writing that vertigo paper and some of my early student films is that, uh, when I'm on set and creating with people like the right collaborators, uh, everything just kind of makes sense. I don't really know how else to describe it, even though it's challenging and stressful. I just feel like all the skills that I have that I value are being utilized at their strongest, in their strongest ways. Um, so I wanna continue to create and, and make stuff and really tell stories that um, I think aren't seen or aren't getting uh, kind of highlighted um, from you know, in, in larger culture or mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I also have found it being really rewarding to help other filmmakers push their projects towards the, the finish line as well. So I want to continue to find a balance of being able to create my work in a powerful and meaningful way um, and grow in that capacity, but also always use a portion of my time to help empower other artists because, you know, it seems so inaccessible to me before 
and it doesn't it didn't have to um and i hope that i can do that more for for other filmmakers that's great um busy day in la today we got sirens we got helicopters we got uh, (laughs) all types of things going on it's another friday in los angeles (laughs) that's right um this is fantastic man it's so good to talk with you um you know, I, I haven't signed up for Seed and Spark, but I will. And uh, if I if I crowdfund again, that's where I'm going to do it. Because, you know, I, I, I use Kickstarter and that was just a, a, a drop in the bucket, you know, as far as all the other people on there. This seems very uh, communal, uh, very supportive. Um, and with a track record like that, why wouldn't you go there? Yeah, I mean, like the other platforms have a lot of great stuff to offer as well, too. Uh, but I just felt, you know, because of what my goals were and the filmmaker focus that Seed and Spark was the best fit for me. And, you know, that even the the little support that that community or the support that you kind of get from that community a bit and the, the free educational resources and opportunities were going to help more people like me when I felt like, I would just be a drop in the bucket to the other platforms because I wasn't anybody famous or established. And look at you now. <laughs> I, I would still argue I'm not very famous or, or established, but. <laughs> um, well, you're doing it, man. You're, you're making films. Uh, you know, you've infiltrated the system on many levels, <laughs> uh, which I respect. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, and you, you're, you're telling your stories and, and that's great. I think uh, a lot of indie filmmakers out there would uh, chop off their arm to be in your position. <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, I have this thing and I feel like other people have it too, that once like it's harder to realize like what you've done because you're the one doing it all the time. So I do try to take moments to think back about like where I was and what I thought, you know, and how far away everything felt. And I would like, I really would encourage people who are frustrated or, feel like it's so outside of their reach that it is possible there's going to be a lot of hard days and challenging times and I think that there are always going to be hard days and challenging times no matter what level you're at mm-hmm. you know like the hard days and the, the problems never go away um, I think what by just being persistent and being uh, able to learn from all the stuff that you're doing you're just increasing your your ability to be able to handle those problems and handle them quickly and efficiently so that you can continue to grow. So I really think that persistence uh, is one of the strongest assets for a filmmaker to have um, as they're trying to trying to figure out how to make it work for them in this industry. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a necessity, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for our listeners out there, they can just go to Seed and Spark and uh, sign up Lickety Split. Yeah, you can go to seedandspark.com if you want to uh, become a, a subscriber to uh, view our streaming library. That's six ninety nine a month. Um, and, you know, it, we try to do really equal payouts to our filmmakers. Um, they have access to the data and stuff like that. Um, and you have access to a really great library of, of uh, shorts and features and series um, that screen at festivals and things like that, but maybe aren't going to get the same kind of promotion as they would at at some of the other platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the crowdfunding side, it's, you know, you can start a project, you can become a member of Seed and Spark to get our newsletter and like, look and follow projects. And that doesn't cost anything. So, you know, you can kind of go in there and poke around and see what's funding 
um, and, and everything to get a sense of the community. And on the subscription side, the first month's free. So you can sign up for the first month and watch some stuff and then kind of see, you know, what, what makes sense there on, on the site of what works for you and your interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's all about give and take in, in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I would suggest to, uh, any indie filmmaker out there to sign up now before they, they, uh, start crowdfunding, you know, start, uh, you know, uh, making connections and, and building relationships before it's time for you to ask for money. Absolutely. And that should be done, you know, it's all about that audience building. And so, you know, getting involved in the communities, not just seed and spark, but ones that, um, for your audience are going to be really helpful. I did a lot of outreach myself to a lot of different organizations here in Los Angeles. Um, when I was crowdfunding, a lot of them based upon, um, the Asian American community here in LA and Asian Americans in entertainment and media, uh, and like issues of representation and stuff. And they became some of my biggest supporters. And I was able to meet a lot of my collaborators on the actual short film through that process. So, oh, wow. uh, so doing that outreach and connecting with people, you know, way before you launch the campaign, um, really will help you run a better campaign. I think it'll help you make a better movie and it will help create this infrastructure of uh, having that audience who wants to see the film when it's done and then support you on the next project you're going to make. Very cool. And if they wanted to reach out to you, is uh, Twitter a good spot? Yeah, Twitter's a great spot. You can reach me. It's just my name, Jerry Maravilla, or uh, you can email me um, at jerry at seedandspark.com, and that's Jerry with a G. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. This was very informative, and uh, I'm actually excited to check out Seed and Spark uh, you're a great spokesman for them. I can see why they made you head of crowdfunding. Um, but I want to wish you luck and, and, and the best of luck moving forward uh, with all your filmmaking endeavors. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been really great to talk to you. And I'm glad to just try to get this some of this information out there. I felt like I spent a long time banging my head against the wall trying to figure out how to get something made. So anything I can do to help other people get over that hurdle... I'm more than happy to do so. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes at IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter at IndieFilmGrit. And subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grit?